This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. You're listening to Valley Football First and Goal, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference on the lineupmedia.fm network. Now, your host, Kelly Burke. Welcome to the MVFC First and Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Burke, and joining me today to talk about the state of college football, COVID, will we play, and so much more is the longtime commissioner of the Missouri Valley Football Conference, Patty Viverito. Patty, how are you? I'm doing well. All things considered, I'm doing great. Good. How have you spent the pandemic so far? Well, um, I'm in my sunroom, uh, which was a recent addition to our house, and so I I camp out here in this lovely sunny place and the other half of the room is my yoga studio. So that's the other thing that I do to keep sane. Um, but people just assume since it's summer and there's no sports going on that, you know, I just must put my feet up and I don't know, slip cocktails. It's crazy busy because we keep spinning our wheels trying to guess what's going to happen next. Yeah. Speaking of, what might happen next you you are the vice chair of the football oversight committee and for people that are unfamiliar what that means and and what you do how would you describe your responsibilities well um i've been on the nca council this is my second year of a four-year term and um the way the nca council is set up it's representative so every conference has representatives but then each of the subdivisions um, have a commissioner representative. And so my FCS colleagues uh, gave me the nod two years ago and said, go ahead, Patty, represent us. And so as part of that assignment, I also am assigned to one of the standing committees that reports to the council. And the football oversight committee is, is where I was assigned by choice. And um, it started out as being, um, you know, great, great, interesting work, you know, things like four-year, four-game transfer rules or four-game four redshirt rules and, and the transfer environment and pretty typical NCA agenda sort of things. And then COVID hit and um, we've, we've just sort of scrapped all the routine business and we meet for 90 minutes every week. Um, as vice chair, I'm part of prep calls for all of those meetings, um, as well as any business, business that needs to be transacted in between meetings. So I'm probably on, you know, two or three calls a week for FOC. And then um, council meetings, we're meeting at least monthly, we had a meeting yesterday. And, and then the commissioners are meeting, you know, two, three, sometimes four times a week. And so yeah. <laughs> a lot of zoom, a lot of zoom calls. Um, and it's pretty remarkable when you think how infrequently we used to meet and how frequently we meet now. And um, it's one of the silver linings I see in what's going on right now because we're so much more connected and I think so much more effective mm -hmm. because the communication is so much stronger. We know that college football is, is going to look a lot different. You know, given the recent uptick in cases in a lot of states out there how optimistic are you that we will still play college football come september of course everything that i say is qualified because you can say something today 
and look like an idiot tomorrow for what you said <laughs> because you know I'm I'm my the words that I'm getting really tired of using in my vocabulary are unprecedented, challenging, fluid, expensive. <laughs> um, but that's part of our world now. Um, let me back up and say that the very first meeting that the Football Oversight Committee had after COVID-19 was apparently going to be a challenge for us, not just in the short term, but you know, absolutely through the fall and who knows how much beyond that. Um, everything that we have done since that very first meeting was to try to ensure that we could play football safely this fall. We are 100% committed to that goal. And I'm not ready to back off of that goal. But you would have to have your head in the sand for the last several days to not be more anxious about that possibility today than we were even a week ago. And so, yes, there have been things that have happened um, in college sports, <clears throat> in pro sports, in, in COVID writ large across the country that give me pause. Um, if I had to handicap it right now, and I, I always tell people, you know, I'm not a medical authority, I'm not a doctor, and I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn last night. So mm -hmm. take it for what it's worth. Um, I, I, I think we're going to start the season. I think interruptions are inevitable. And I hope to God we finish the season. Yeah. I like your optimism. I, I always like optimism when it comes to this. And I, I also should quantify my question too with there, you know, it is important to acknowledge there is a lot more testing out there. So obviously, you know, some of those influx of cases, some of it is attributed to, to more tests being available. And then obviously, some of it is attributed to, to other factors, such as not social distancing and, and other things going on. When it comes to testing, what will the testing have to look like week to week to safely be able to play every Saturday? If this, this goes back to the unprecedented, fluid, <laughs> complex, costly. Um, if you'd asked me that question 24 hours ago, I would have answered it differently than I'm going to answer it right now. Hmm, interesting. That's because of two conversations that I was part of yesterday. Um, if you'd have asked me yesterday morning, I would have said that the NCAA is not going to set national standards, that it's going to be left to conferences, institutions, um, under the auspices of what our state, local, federal, NCA guidelines are going to be, but that we weren't going to get directives. We weren't going to have standards that would be national. And then I had a meeting with um, Midwest commissioners where um, it was signaled that the FBS conferences, or at least let me qualify that, the Autonomy Five conferences are probably a week or two away from um, establishing a standard for interconference play. So they understand that they may set their own conference rules, but for non-conference, there needs to be expectations and standards and while they haven't been published yet, again, I think the signaling is that it's probably gonna be once a week for football. Um, I think it's 
absolutely fair to assume that any of our FCS teams that have FBS opponents on their schedule will be expected to meet that standard. So, you know, nine o'clock yesterday morning, that's where I thought we were. Then we had a two hour um, session with Mark Emmert and the commissioners. And Mark Emmert signaled something very different. Up until now, uh, Dr. Hainline, Brian Hainline, who's the chief medical officer of the NCAA, has been very reticent to talk about even guidelines or best practices nationally, because he fully understands that once an expectation for health and safety is set, even if it's not regulated, just being out there um, is going to put a lot of pressure, not just on Division I football and all the other sports, but Division II, Division III. And if we had to take the testing conditions as we know them today, in terms of availability, reliability, and cost, it's estimated that for the season, it would cost anywhere from $300,000 to $400,000 for a football team. Wow. Um, it would cost somewhere in the neighborhood, if we tested before every contest, um, for basketball, $120,000 per team. Remember that adjective I used about expensive? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Case in point. Um, there are a lot of people that aren't gonna play football if that's the national standard or expectation and things don't change in the testing world. What we heard from Mark Emmert yesterday was that he's come to believe that there has to be a national standard. Not that it's gonna be one that's mandated by the NCAA, but one that is gonna set expectations. And it's almost an academic conversation because the NCAA is gonna set standards for their championships. And I think it's pretty clear that they aren't gonna do anything that's less than what FBS football is gonna come out and say in a week or two. So I think the likelihood of having a standard that's anything less than weekly testing is slim. And I think that we are gonna to have to come to terms with that. And maybe our best strategy is to hope and pray <laughs> that testing changes between now and then so that we can afford, not just to play football, to, to, to play all of our sports. I look at a state like North Dakota, um, who has a very low amount of cases and they don't have, they haven't had an influx of cases in weeks. Um, so there's a challenge for a state like North Dakota because their access to actual tests is, is low because they don't have a lot of cases. So what challenges does that present for, a, you know, a UND for a North Dakota state to, if they, if they're required to test, even have access to those tests? Um, I will be embarrassed to tell you that you clearly have a better handle on what's happening in North Dakota than I did 48 hours ago. <laughs> um, I wasn't tracking on that piece, the availability piece. Um, I was working under the assumption that all of our schools could do testing should we move in that direction. Um, 
we had a, a Missouri Valley Football Conference ADs call two days ago. Again, fluid, changes every day. Um, getting off that call uh, Wednesday afternoon, I got the sense that our league would have had a pretty high comfort level with, with screening, testing symptomatic, you know, understanding that we're all going to be dealing with protocols locally with contact tracing that's going to be very strict and um, you know mandatory testing on a, on, a, on a weekly schedule or any schedule. I didn't think we'd get into that space. And part of the reason we got there on that conversation is that you know North Dakota, our newest member, said, I'm not going to be able to test at any price from what I'm looking at right now. Like we're trying to buy the testing machine and we think we can get it by the start of football season, but we're not sure we can get the chemical agents to run the test before October. Yeah. And you need to understand that these, these, these ingredients, these machines are a precious commodity and people that are able to distribute those resources aren't all that inclined to send them to North Dakota for all the reasons that you just stated. And, you know, I raised that point with, with Dr. Emmert um, when we talked, or uh, Mark Emmert when we talked yesterday and in conversations with Dr. Hainline, because if we're gonna have standards about frequency, I think we need to be very careful about standards for type of testing, because it simply might not be physically possible to do that. And, every market across the states. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I think that's a really valid point. It's my understanding that some conferences have formed medical advisory groups. Is that something that has been formed yet in the Missouri Valley Football Conference? We have um, a COVID-19 working group. Um, it's, it's populated by um, athletic trainers and, um, and, and administrators. Um, across all 10 schools. Um, we don't include doctors at this point in time um, because so much of what is going to happen is gonna be dictated by the local medical authorities. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you another example. Um, we have one school um, where they're actually able through their local hospitals to have access to free testing. Really? Wow. And their team doctor said, no way, waste of time, waste of money. And so that's at one end of the spectrum. Then you had medical authorities in the PAC-12 conferences uh, not that long ago, like two weeks ago, were saying that they thought that the standard that they were going to apply would be testing three times a week because that was the only way that they felt that they could be comfortable, that they would have a true read on what the positives were in their environment. Those are the extremes we're dealing with. Like, you, so to put one or two doctors on a committee. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like political parties at that point. Yeah, it's like, I'm not sure. Like, I, 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 I think I'm going to take my lead from, from Dr. Fauci <laughs> and from Dr. Brian Hainline because they're the ones that are representing national and NCAA and, 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 Dr. Hainline has an advisory panel on COVID-19. I'm much more inclined to listen to them 
than any single team doctor um, in our league. You mentioned Dr. Hainline that he's the NCAA chief medical officer and he addressed all the division one commissioners the other day. What were some of the biggest takeaways with what he shared with you? Well, so much of what he shared has changed in the last 48 hours. Um, you know, he told us there weren't going to be national, you know, mandates or, or even guidelines or, or standards. And I think that's changing. Um, I, I think that he, for the first time um, in my last three months of dealing with Brian, he expressed angst about the fall. And that was really unsettling for me because he's been very optimistic that this can be done. And a little bit of background on, 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 on Dr. Hainline, he's also on the board of the ITA, you know, which runs the US Open. And so they've just come out and you know said that they're gonna play and they've got all, all these protocols. And, and so he's, he's had conversations with all the national organizations, the, the professional sports leagues. Um, and, and so he's really tapped into what's happening. And what he said is we're, we don't have the resources that those pro sports have. Um, and while testing is going to be essential to part of how we manage sports this fall, we're not gonna test our way out of this crisis. And so I, I, think, I think the direction we're getting from him is cautious optimism that masking and maybe even shields for football players um, may be the answer. Uh, the one thing that he was absolutely adamant about, which which um, is just practical advice, is you know what we do on sidelines. You know, we, you know he's advocating for you know expanding by rule the, the the team area so that people can spread out. And he said, at no time on the sidelines or even during a practice situation can a player ever approach a coach without being masked or shielded. Wow. And he said, because while we are absolutely committed to the health and safety of everybody that's involved in the sport, by virtue of who they are, the most at risk are probably our coaches because of their ages. And so, you know, while the young, healthy football player may contract COVID-19, and end up being asymptomatic or not severe symptoms, a coach may not be that fortunate. And so we need to protect everybody and that includes the coaches. And so that was just, that's just one of hundreds if not thousands of decisions that we're gonna need to make when it comes to every single protocol of how we do business. And that's what makes my head explode. <laughs> Yeah. To have a mask or, or face shield, some players obviously already play with them, but to have it on every single player's helmet, how difficult is that for the manufacturers of the helmets and to do that for every football team? All to be determined. Um, the shield idea is one that really has gathered steam only in the last couple of weeks. And Dr. Hainline is pretty high on them. Um, we have a uh, a number of helmet manufacturers who are looking into how we manage this. You can't just go out and buy like a lower face mask shield and, and attach it. 
because that would alter the manufacturer's helmet in a way that they'd have to go back and, and make sure that it tests for concussion safety purposes. And so you can't fix one problem and create another. And so there's lots of very quick work and testing that's being done on the, the idea of the shields. Um, I, I can't imagine football players playing with masks, um, but they would have to have a mask just like they've got a mouth guard when they go to the sidelines um, to, to manage that part of it, the, the interaction on the sidelines piece. Um, Dr. Hainline, I said, is very optimistic about the shields being not just for football, for, but for a lot of sports um, being part of the solution. Um, I can tell you that on our COVID-19 call earlier in the week when I brought up Shields, one of the football trainers said, like, without hesitation, that's crazy. He, she said, if you are, are even in practice, like, think about the, the humid and heat conditions. Those Shields are going to fog up. And I just said... I can't even go to the grocery store in a mask without my glasses fogging up. So like, I get it. So there's a lot of unknown out there right now that, you know, we, we keep grasping for solutions. And I think that um, this is another presentation that came up and it came up from uh, the session we have with um, Dr. Hainline and facilities people. And the facilities people were talking about all the steps that they're taking to make facilities safe. And they talked about it in terms of no single action is going to be the solution. Think of it as a stack of Swiss cheese where there's holes in everything that you're doing. But if you stack enough slices of Swiss cheese together, <laughs> chances are you'll get all the holes covered. And so um, we've been thinking in terms of Swiss cheese lately <laughs> about how, how many layers can you stack um, to, to achieve safety. That's a great analogy. What are some of the other main issues that you've discussed with university presidents in our league, athletic directors, and, and football coaches? I, I think that um, we've focused, and I say we, I'm, I'm talking about the football oversight committee now, we've been so focused on figuring out when we return, and um, you know, we finally got that model uh, approved and it was passed unanimously um, by both FBS and FCS just a week or so ago. And it involves, you know, maintaining the regular 29 day practice um, that we've always had on the books. And then you back up another two weeks and you have um, a period of two weeks where you can have 20 hours of um, what we call summer access. So it's, you know, weight training and team meetings and, and walkthroughs with footballs. Um, and then we backed it up another 10 days and said, you can have activities in that space for eight hours a week. So we, we have a pretty long runway to figure that out. Um, of course, that doesn't answer your question, but it, it tells you kind of like where we focused until now. Um, now we've got to switch gears and figure out how we return to football. And um, again, I, I, I used the term earlier, that's when my head explodes because when you think of all the things that need to be considered, um, just with a, a weight room and a practice and a team meeting, 
um, <clears throat> I was on a I was on a, a meeting the other day with um, with Coach Shaw from uh, Stanford, and he said I was talking to one of my colleagues. Um, this was a couple of weeks ago, and how he couldn't wait to get his team back so that he could meet with them. And he said, I looked at him and said, are you crazy? Like, we're meeting by Zoom now. And one thing we've learned is that we can do this by Zoom. He said, the thought of me bringing my team back and putting them in an enclosed room with a lot of people and our staff is like, the last thing I'm going to do when kids, when our student athletes come back to campus, we're going to keep meeting by Zoom. And so, you know, again, the, the coaching community needs to come together and figure out how they can educate each other and our campuses on how we can manage this in a way that um, gives us a chance to play football this fall. Um, now I say that, and I think that we will have all those protocols. We will have all those best practices. We will have educated coaches and staff, and we're going to have these student athletes for you know 20 hours a week. And then what are they going to do with their time off? <laughs> you're you're only as good as that that one slice of cheese <laughs> with the holes in it. Yeah. And we've, that's what we've seen happen in the last week with several football teams shutting down what they've just started because of, of, of outbreaks, um, you know, and some caused by lack of social distancing when they're not in the on-campus facilities. Um, they're, they're, they're college kids. You know, it's not like an NBA team that you can put in a bubble and say you can't see anybody at your family for the next three months. That's not how it works. Yeah. These are college student athletes and um, they can't be restricted in the same ways. All you can do is educate, hope that they will all pledge to be safe and that the results will be positive. It's funny that you say that because I tweeted something earlier this week about when I started seeing, you know, that Clemson had 28 or 30 guys test positive and LSU and Texas and you're used to being a college student, having the freedom to go to bars, do normal things that normal college students do. At this point, you have to be willing to sacrifice the short-term pleasures of, of being a college student for the long-term livelihood of being able to have a football season. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't see your girlfriend or your family. You just have to be really choosy about who you're associating with and how many people you're seeing outside of your team. Yeah, this is the silver lining that I try to apply when things get like really kind of scary. Um, it's so good that we're having these experiences in June and not in August. And maybe by having these experiences now, the lesson learned will be that we don't have these same experiences in September, October, November, December. How do you anticipate the league broadcasts will look differently this year, especially for someone like myself who is used to being on the sideline and I'm used to interviewing coaches or players at halftime or at postgame? Well, um, the first casualty 
um, of, of what a game is going to look like is um, the beloved tradition of the pregame handshake. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, I know you're well aware. Um, we're the only conference, football conference in the country that does a full team pregame handshake. And it's a tradition that I'm really proud of. And I, I think it, it, it is so symbolic in such a positive way of what this league represents. And uh, on the call on Wednesday, you know, and, and whenever we get a new coach in the league, by the way, they're going to go, we're doing what? <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, we have three new coaches, so. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I always have to, you know, go back to square one, give them the history, tell them why we do it and why it's a president's initiative and it's not going to change. Well, it is going to change this year. Nobody's going to be shaking hands pregame. Are we waving so, at each other? <laughs> so I, yeah, so I, I conceded that we are suspending the pregame handshake. So right from the start. Um, on an earlier podcast that you had on race and social justice issues, um, the question was raised about the national anthem. You know, should teams be out on the field for that now from a social justice perspective? Um, so now we're not even to the kickoff yet. and We've already are looking at ways that it's going to look different. Um, I think it's safe to say that uh, the broadcasts are going to be more important than ever yeah. because the likelihood of full stadiums is probably zero. The likelihood of empty stadiums is probably greater than that. I, although I hope we're going to fall somewhere in between those two extremes. Um, I think we'll, st we'll still have, we'll, we will have to make accommodations to safely broadcast the games. Um, will it change your job on the sidelines? Probably. Yeah. And th those are conversations. I've had that conversation with Mike and the options that he's presented to me. All, they all sound great. I mean, I just, I just want to work. So, you know, you can, <laughs> we want you, you can, to work. Kelly. Yeah, you can put me, you can put me in Taiwan and I would still do the broadcast, you know, like I'm willing to do whatever. <laughs> well, think about what, what ESPN and, 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 uh, you know, our partner has already done with remote broadcasting in terms of production. There are lots of ways to do this um, and to do it safely. Um, I'm far less concerned right now um, about what we're going to be doing with broadcasting, partly because I'm confident that we can do it safely, and secondly, because it's Mike's responsibility rather than mine, and I trust him to figure this out. We've established that the players in some form are, are likely going to have to be tested regularly, but, but to what extent do you see coaches and trainers and support staff and officials and broadcasters, people like myself, having to get tested at all? I think that anyone that is in risky contact with student athletes will be part of the testing protocol. Mm -hmm. So um, you can take it in steps. Uh, coaches, yes. Staff, probably the equipment managers, yes. Athletic trainers, yes. Um, when you expand that circle of contact to, um, to more peripheral areas, um, to be very specific, when Dr. Hainline spoke to us and we were talking about sideline, he goes, uh, like the chain gang, do they need to be tested? He said, no, just put them in masks and, you know, that, that should not be an issue. The big conundrum right now that's getting a lot of conversations, what do you do with officials? Because they're coming from outside and they're traveling every week. 
Um, now we may be able to do some geographic assignments that keeps them off planes, although I'm not even sure that's really the issue. Um, you know, but they're gonna be staying in hotels and they're gonna be traveling. And um, do they need to be tested weekly, just like the, the student athletes? I don't know, I don't know. That's, that's one of those unknowns right now. You know, can they work in masks? Um, maybe. Can they work in shields? You know, maybe. Um, to be determined. <laughs> you alluded to about, about some of the FBS teams that, you know, some have had to shut down voluntary workouts because of outbreaks temporarily. To your knowledge, um, has anybody in the Missouri Valley Football Conference had to shut down voluntary workouts yet? And are, are you aware of any positive cases? Um, I'm not, but a lot of our teams aren't, aren't doing voluntary workouts yet. A lot of our, some of our facilities aren't even open yet. And so um, I think we're gonna see um, waves of, 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 you know, parts of the team coming back, really starting probably early July. Um, Missouri State was the exception to that. You know, they brought their team back for voluntary workouts or opened it for voluntary workouts pretty early. Um, I've not heard of positive tests, um, but it's it's not even just the positive tests. It's it's the the risk, the high risk contacts that if if, if somebody tests positive, then everybody that falls into that category also has to, um, you know self-quarantine or quarantine in some way. And um, our campuses don't make that decision. Yeah. It's the local health authorities that do the contact tracing that decide who needs to be, you know, taken out of the mix um, for, for activities. And so, um, again, hopefully they're all paying close attention to the news and are, are, are recognizing that, um, Positive tests are inevitable. Um, and one of the scary parts of this is that a lot of those positive tests are asymptomatic. And that's great for the student athlete that they're not sick, but it means that they, are, they can be spreading the disease um, very unknowingly in ways that um, young people can sometimes seem like they're invincible and it's not you know, they're not at risk. And so it's, it's educating everybody to recognize that we're all responsible, not just for our own safety, but for the safety of others when it comes to the health protocols. What are some of the other conferences out there that, that you're paying close attention to, to look to as models for, for Valley football? Um, I, I had a, a, an email just last night from one of our uh, SWAs who told me what her strategy was for establishing um, protocols on their campus. And she said one word, steal. <laughs> <laughs> she has, you know, uh, a friend on an on a, on a A5 campus who sent their entire protocol, uh, institutional protocol. And, uh, and she said, and, um, you know, I'm just changing names and locations. <laughs> <laughs> because they've done really good work. And so, yes, we can all learn from each other. And uh, part of these seminars that we had with the commissioners earlier this week was um, a plea from the FCS commissioners to our FBS 
colleagues to say, help us. We know that you're several steps ahead of us in terms of planning and putting resources into um, these plans and these protocols. And without exception, the response was an, you know, a, a resounding, of course we'll help. You, you know, just say what you need and we will do that. And so we're actually sort of setting up a clearinghouse where we can share um, what the plans are at both the campus and conference levels in a way that um, will, so we're not all spinning our wheels trying to do the exact same things, you know, a hundred different times. Uh, and I think we'll learn from that. And just as a sidebar that doesn't have anything directly related to COVID-19, we had the same conversation about social justice initiatives. Oh, and, nice. um, yes. And that was, that was a very enlightening and positive. It was such a breath of fresh air after all of the the angst-filled conversations we were having about COVID-19, to have a conversation about action plans for dealing with social justice issues was so refreshing. And, um, and we're equally committed to sharing ideas in that, in that realm. Good. And it will, and I should mention too, uh, you know, that, that's definitely something I want to talk about. This is more of a COVID podcast today, but I definitely want to do a separate podcast with you later in the summer once some of those ideas and action steps are flushed out about, about those new social justice initiatives and action plans that you're establishing. Because, you know, like you said, it is, a, it is at the forefront and it is, uh, you know, it's something that we're going to have to implement and rightfully so. With you. When it comes to, you know, the, the FCS and FBS levels, how, how much are you following what the NFL will do in some of these other professional leagues that are going to be coming back in July and August um, to, to see how they're handling COVID? I'm paying attention more as a, a fan than as a professional um, because we can't replicate what they're doing. They can afford to test daily. They can afford to enforce, you know, bubbles. They can, they can, they can throw a lot of money at this problem that we can't. They can throw a lot of restrictions at this problem, which we can't just by nature of college sports. So, um, yes, I follow. Um, yes, there are. I'm sure there are going to be lessons to be learned, but. I'm not sure how applicable those lessons are going to be. Um, I just, I just hope that they're successful because if they fail with all of the resources and ability to restrict that they have, then it's going to be that much more challenging for us to operate this fall. You talked about the the cost involved with some of these tests as a whole. What kind of financial burden does COVID present for the league, for member institutions, and for individual athletic departments? Um, to say that our institutions are under financial pressures um, understates it to the point of the extreme. Um, until we know what our enrollments look like this fall. Um, and that applies to all of our schools, public and private, Valley, Missouri Valley football. Um, we don't know 
the, the extremity, uh, the, you know, the extreme that, that we're going to be looking at. But, you know, everyone is searching for every possible way to cost cut and to manage, you know, our athletic departments without dropping sports. And that's a real challenge. And, you know, if, if, you, if you follow the news, there's not a day that goes by now that you don't read about somebody dropping a sport or canceling a tournament or putting restrictions on non-conference competition. Um, there's, there's just a lot of um, financial uh, pressure that, to be honest, our, our schools have always had financial pressures. And then you add, you know, the prospect of lost revenues and increased costs, and it, it, it's hard to find silver linings. Um, but I'll give you one. Um, you know, if, if there are no fans in the stand, we're not in the same shape that FBS is. <laughs> We're, we're not we're not reliant on you know multi-million dollar paydays you know seven eight nine weekends in the fall to run our entire athletic programs that's that's not our model and so I, I take some comfort in that that knowing that even if we have an interrupted season or god forbid no season sports isn't what's going to make or break our universities right now yeah. um it's enrollment yeah, that makes sense. And I, well, I was I was talking with Mike Kern about it, and you know, given that the the TV rating, given that we have this great system of ESPN Plus and ESPN Three, the TV rating should be through the roof, which means there should be more opportunities to bring on more advertisers and generate more revenue in that form. I love your silver lining thinking, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the same boat. <laughs> There are some people out there, um, it's probably in the minority, that would suggest we should just table college football until next spring. And for those people that are in, in that select group, what would you want them to know? I would say that any plan right now has a certain element of rolling the dice. So let's roll the dice with what we know rather than foregoing an opportunity to play sports this fall. And, you know, I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but, you know, throwing all your eggs in that basket, but it's Easter, you know, we'd be playing football at Easter, which is kind of crazy. So no, I, I'm of a mind that um, until the virus tells us no, our game plan is to stick with what we know. Mm -hmm. What are the circumstances that would shut down next season? That was actually a question that was asked pretty directly in our commissioner's seminars this week. Um, and we don't know. <laughs> this is one time when I think I feel really comfortable, you know, looking you in the eye as best I can through Zoom and saying, I don't know. <laughs> No. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, I want to leave on a, a positive note. So what gives you the greatest hope right now about college football and that we will play? Because I think we are motivated to 
played this sport and all sports in much the same way that we wanted to get back to sports after 9-11. And that might be kind of a crazy analogy, but we kind of need sports. We, we're social animals. And even if we can't be tailgating or in the stands, I think we need sports to bring us together because historically they've served that purpose and they've served that purpose well. So I'm hopeful that we will be motivated enough uh, and successful enough and um, have testing that's cheap enough <laughs> to let us play football this fall. Well, it's great to see you as always. I get, I get so excited now for anything Zoom related with, with sports related because I think if anything, this, this pandemic has reaffirmed to all of us how much we are lucky to do what we do in the, the world of sports and how much we miss it. We do. And um, every day, I hope that I can do more than sit in my sunroom and think about football, but actually um, watch football this fall. Well, thank you for taking the time today um, and happy birthday to Frank. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. Tune in next week for another episode of Valley Football First and Goal with Kelly Bird, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference only on the lineupmedia.fm network. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. This podcast was a presentation of lightupmedia.fm.